You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I chat with Raul Pal to discuss the macro environment, NFTs, crypto, and Bitcoin. Raul is a co-founder of Real Vision, has run a successful global macro hedge fund, co-managed Goldman Sachs hedge fund sales business in equities and equity derivatives in Europe, and helped design the BBC TV program Million Dollar Traders, training participants in investment and risk management strategy. Raul now lives in the Cayman Islands, from where he manages Real Vision and writes The Global Macro Investor, a highly regarded original research service for hedge funds, family offices, sovereign wealth funds, and other elite investors. During this interview, we went into detail about the macro environment. Raul gave insight on the phases of a crisis and where we are currently. He also explained that what the death of the macro environment means, how it affects new investors, and if it is something they should be even worried about. We also discussed the impact of social media on the markets and if the advantage that Wall Street and institutional investors has held over regular retail investors has shrunken. Raul shared his thoughts in regard to NFTs, what they are, how he views them as a potential investment, and lastly, he gives his take on crypto and Bitcoin. And now, without further delay, let's get into today's very timely episode with Raul Pal. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Millennial Investing Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Raul Pal. Welcome to the show, Raul. Great to be here. Looking forward to it. For those in the audience who may not be familiar with your work or Real Vision, give them an overview of your background, your story, Real Vision, everything you got going on. Background was, I was a traditional finance guy. I caught the wave in the 90s which was a fantastic way, but I was involved in the derivative market and then the rise of the hedge fund business. So I was a salesman at first, working for many of the largest investment banks, ended up in Goldman, starting and co-running the hedge fund sales business in equities and equity derivatives. So I got to speak to the most famous hedge fund managers in the world on a daily basis. I was the guy in Europe, and it was a very fantastic opportunity to learn from the best. I then decided I'd learned and I now wanted to make some more mistakes. So I then went and joined one of my clients, which was the largest hedge fund firm in Europe called GLG Partners. First, I started running a book and then having made plenty of mistakes, I then figured out what I needed to be doing and then launched and ran the global macro hedge fund for them for several years. Then decided the hedge fund business was not the business that I wanted to be in any longer because it was now becoming an asset gathering business as opposed to a performance business. And I decided to opt out of the rat race, move to the Mediterranean coast of Spain and live in the middle of a national park five minutes from the beach. And I did that for 10 years, writing Global Macro Investor, which is my flagship research product. I started it just to keep my hand in the game, pay some bills, keep the hand in the game for the world's best known hedge fund managers because they're all kind of people I grew up with. And I had probably more experience in the hedge fund space than any other person writing at the time, any research. Most people either came out of investment banks as research people, or they just came out of the newsletter world. So I was one of the rare people who had been running money, knew that whole business from start to finish. I still write Global Macro Invest to this day. So that's 16 years later. It's still one of the preeminent macro research services in the world and still read by the world's most famous hedge fund managers, sovereign wealth funds, family offices 
stuff like that. And then somewhere on that crazy journey in Spain, having watched the world almost collapse twice, 2008 and then 2012 in Europe, when we almost lost all European banks and Europe itself. I was at the epicenter of all of that and knew exactly what was going on. But friends of my parents and friends of friends didn't. And they would come up to me and say, well, why don't we know? And I'm like, this sits really uncomfortably with me. Why do some people have all the information and others have none? So that got me on the journey of thinking and wanted to do something about it. And somewhere down the line, three of the co-founders lived in the same village in Spain, the same town in Spain. Over a few drinks, we started coming up with the idea. The fourth co-founder, Grant Williams, happened to be in Spain. I didn't know him at all. He had made a couple of videos and we thought, you know what? Video is going to be the answer. This is very early still in video world. So that's what we started. I don't think you guys would exist without Real Vision. I don't think any of the podcasts would exist without Real Vision. You know, half the things, Real Vision was the start of it all, of democratizing the very best financial information. Still to this day, we have the most incredible roster of guests and people that nobody else can get, that just helps people understand what the hell is going on. Helps them understand the complex world of kind of finance, business, and the global economy and how it all interacts. And we've moved also into crypto because that's been part of this journey too. And crypto macro now, the same thing. Just means we've got all got a lot to learn. So all the crypto people have got to learn a lot about macro. All the macro people have got to learn a lot about crypto. So it's a fun time as well. So that's basically the story. I live in the Cayman Islands. So I moved to the Cayman Islands back in 2014. We set up Real Vision here. And I live between two islands, a small island of 140 people called Little Cayman. And the big island, Grand Cayman, of about 60,000 people where I am today in my office. I want to preface this whole conversation by saying that I don't know a ton about everything that we're going to talk about. I'm familiar with it all. I've studied it a bit. I spend a lot of time on Real Vision, but we're going to talk about macro, crypto, NFTs, a couple other just general topics. I'm not an expert on these by any means. We're all learning, right? We're all learning. The point is none of us are experts and anybody who claims they are are lying. It's things are moving so fast. We have no idea what an NFT, what happens today. We have no idea what that's going to look like in five years, let alone three years. So everyone should have the confidence in knowing that nobody knows anything. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you view the macro landscape currently? I've heard in some other interviews that you've mentioned there are three phases of a crisis, liquidation, hope, and insolvency. Explain what occurs with each phase. Usually what happens is there's a realization that economic growth is about to disappear or has disappeared. That's when everyone goes, oh my God, sell everything. I don't know what to do. That's the liquidation phase. We saw that last March. This time last year, we were middle of the liquidation phase, right? Just panic, sell, get out. I need to assess what's going on. Then you normally have something called the hope phase. The hope phase is, you know what? It's going to be all right. Now, normally that hope phase usually goes on for three to six months and then fades because the reality sets in. This is part credit crisis because businesses couldn't generate money, people couldn't pay their debts. Normally speaking, the insolvencies, the bankruptcies rise, and then you get the next wave as all the unemployment comes, et cetera. But this one actually played out differently because the central banks and governments were so aggressive. We've never seen anything like this in all history that it stopped the insolvencies because they just gave people money, said, don't go bust to me, please don't go bust, here's some money. It was for businesses. You can borrow money. You don't have to pay us back. Individuals, I don't care what happens. Here's 1500 bucks or whatever the number is. So that has either stopped the insolvency phase, but you've transferred those debts to the government and the central bank, or it's delayed it and we've got more to come as people realize that retail jobs, for example, are probably never coming back. 
So it has changed compared to a normal crisis. That's the important thing when we get to that mix between macro and crypto. We've learned now that interest rates, which were the usual mechanism to stimulate the economy, I cut interest rates, you might borrow some more money or mortgage payments go down. So you've got some more money to spend in a restaurant. That's the basic mechanism. Or you can spend more on your credit card. But interest rates were zero anyway, basically. So then the only answer was this monetary printing that we see, quantitative easing. If you don't get it, it's not like somebody says, oh, look, we just put $10,000 in your bank account. Where do I get it from? It's a weird world, but there is a mechanism by which that finds its way into asset prices. And I'll explain a little bit about that in a sec. And things you know, go up in price, things get more expensive. And the idea is it also allows people who need money, like big corporations, to get the money that they need. So that also, the flip side of what sounds like an amazing piece of magic has another negative side, is that piece of magic is actually the creation of more money. So let's say you were really thirsty and I gave you a bottle of water. You'd pay me pretty much anything for it. Let's say you're not ordinarily thirsty, maybe two small bottles of water, you'll replete. Now, if I give you a thousand bottles of water, you don't really want them anymore. So you won't pay for any of that water because there's too much water. It's the same with all assets. If there's too much of it, it becomes free in value to you. So we've seen that, for example, in music. Music has become essentially free. The same is true of money. What happens is if you create more of it, it's not like we all get richer. If we all get richer at the same time, we're all going to pay more for that restaurant meal because we all have more money. So what happens is the value of money falls. And that is where the macro of this huge recession based around this, the most indebted economy the world has ever seen, which is the US, in this global indebted world with an aging population and a bunch of millennials who have gone into the labor force with massive debts, which is very difficult for them. Then we've got the central banks kind of devaluing the value of money. And that's what led people to think, this doesn't feel right. People seem to be getting poorer, not richer, and all this money's around. Why? When I looked at this, and I went back in history, and looked at wages adjusted for inflation over the last 40 years. The story of millennials and baby boomers is all written in this. Basically, wages have kind of kept pace with average price of stuff, because technology has been deflationary. You know, Food goes up and down, gas goes up and down. But what's really happened is the value of assets has gone up because of this printing of money. So if you're a 32-year-old baby boomer in about 1980, you start saving and investing, same as millennials are doing right now. So they've suddenly become financialized as you guys have become financialized. So they become financialized. The equity market is trading at a price earnings of seven, the cheapest in history. The bond market is giving you yields of 18%, the most ever. And real estate prices have been ravaged by inflation and they've cost nothing. So a baby boomer starting his journey in his financial life or her financial life could do nothing but make money because you were given very attractive things. So cut to a year and a half ago, there's a bunch of millennials thinking, I need to start saving for my 401k. I've got debts to pay off. I'm almost there. I'm still not there yet. I can't afford a property because they're all-time highs. I can't afford real estate and I can't afford the equity market because it's all expensive. And that was the issue that came from printing of money is these assets have gone up so much that your share for your income was less than the previous generation and the generation before that. 
So you're kind of screwed. And so suddenly crypto comes along and here's something that goes from being a small market, but its opportunity is maybe another 200x from here. So you've now suddenly been given something that gives you the opportunity to generate some meaningful wealth. But the wage issue has been a massive problem over time. And wages aren't going up because there's a bunch of baby boomers, 76 million of them in the workforce in the US. And you've just thrown 85 million millennials all in the same workplace. Do you remember the, the maths about money? If you have too much of something, it's worth nothing. Guess what? You're all worth nothing, which is why everyone's finding it so hard to earn a living and make enough money because there's too many people in the workforce. That will change over time as the baby boomers come out of the workforce, but it's not great because technology is eating the rest of your jobs. Do you think this is why we're seeing so many different assets come about? I mean, first it was crypto, then we, we have NFTs. And then recently, I've been even seeing individual investors to be able to finance receivables for companies. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, but there's just all these alternative assets that are out there. And I'm just like, it's great that it's being democratized, but is that why we're seeing this? There's so many like crazy things that you never would have thought. They actually came from creating solutions to the problems of the existing system, right? We've got this money that keeps devaluing. So let's create a money that can't be devalued. Okay, genius. So then all that's happening is we've created this new world. And at first it was small. Just think of it like discovering the Americas. And Europe is the old financial system. And the Americas has been discovered. So the first people go over there, go, yeah, it's fine. You know, we've got to fight about a bunch of the natives who are here. It's pretty hard. We need to figure our way around. We can probably grow stuff. It looks all right. And then boat load after boat load come and it starts expanding. It's the same with crypto. People had this crazy idea that you could make something from this. Over time, people are migrating across because they starting to understand is, how the hell do I offset this? I'm never going to make money. So then once you've created this world, well, guess what? Somebody builds New York City and that's Bitcoin. And then somebody builds Ethereum and you can suddenly now program these smart contracts and people start populating that world. And then they start populating other cities. Now it's Philly and then it's LA. They're just other crypto projects. NFTs, they're just all ways of fixing. So why NFTs? NFTs do a number of different things, but really it's to cut the middleman out. So you can sell things directly to an audience that you know. Now, there is some middlemen because you sell artwork on exchanges still. Speaking to a friend of mine, RAC, he's a Grammy award-winning musician, and he's issuing NFTs in music. What is your fascination? He's like, the music industry takes 80% of our economics, and that's the middlemen do. That's even Google and Facebook. So let's say he's got a big community of people who love his music. For him to sell them something, he basically has to use Google and Facebook to drive that. And there's advertising, sell them albums and stuff, and everybody's taking a cut. Now he's able to sell directly to his community and sell them scarce assets. So you're creating scarcity in a digital world because it's like having an autograph. His autograph would have been on a CD or an album before, and now it's his digital autograph on an NFT. So there can be 50,000 of those, like there can be with every album, but the album that's signed by the artist, it's always worth more. People overcomplicate all of this, but it's just authenticity, scarcity. Scarcity in our world has value because there's too much of other things. Before we get into a full conversation about NFTs and crypto, I want to go back to... You mentioned quantitative easing and money printing. I think a lot of millennials hear these two terms all the time. It's always in the financial news, but they never know exactly exactly what it is. Like, Are they Literally, is there a printer printing cash? Is it on a screen? So for those who don't know, explain what financial experts generally mean when they broadly say that the government is printing money. Here's the rub. 
The central bank will tell you they're not printing money. And there's a bunch of banks that'll tell you they're not printing money, that they're doing something different. But what they actually do is they don't turn up one morning and just go, oh, let's add another billion dollars today. What they say is, we're going to buy these bonds, these government bonds that you have, and we're going to give you the cash for those. And then you say, okay, where's that cash coming from? We're just going to put that on the computer. That's the billion dollars. So you're taking government debt out of the system, which are those bonds, and giving people money instead. So in effect, the Federal Reserve is calling around all these asset management firms saying, or the banks and saying, hey, listen, we want to buy a billion dollars of bonds today. What have you got to sell? So then people buy them. It pushes the price of bonds up or yields down. People sell them to the Fed and the Fed hold them on their balance sheet and they give them money instead that they've just created. So then you are the fund manager and you've just been given your billion dollars. What do you do? Do you go and buy some more stocks? Do you go and buy something else? What do you buy with it? Leave it. They're there to invest. So that's the basic mechanism by which this all happens. You know, banks may sell the bonds that they've got in their books and then they will use that money to maybe lend to hedge funds to take more risk or to corporations or whatever it may be. So that's what monetary printing is. But in the end, it's a creation of money and a way of distributing it, which is buying these bonds. How does that trickle down to an individual investor or an individual person? It doesn't. Why do you think there's a rich-poor divide? It doesn't trickle down to you and I. It doesn't make our credit cards cheaper. Yes, our mortgages have come down in price because bond yields have come lower because they've bought bonds. But really, it doesn't make it easier for us to borrow. It makes it really easy to be a huge corporation. You can borrow money at zero all day in infinite size. But for people, it doesn't. But if you go back to that fund manager that sold his bonds, he's now pushing up the price of equities or real estate or whatever. And us as individuals mean we can buy less of them because the price has gone up. It's like when Bitcoin was at 5,000 bucks, you might be able to buy one. When it's at 50,000 bucks, you can only buy a tenth of one. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. 
Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. On Twitter, you recently talked about the death of the macro environment. Can you explain to us what you meant by that? Yes. So macro investing is really all about the macroeconomic state of the world and how it affects asset prices. So when the economy is growing, certain assets will do well. When certain economies are growing, maybe ones that consume a lot of commodities, other parts will do well. When the environment rolls over and recession comes, then assets react accordingly. So macro is all about the interrelationship between economies and asset prices. It's great because it's super broad. It's everything from credit to emerging markets to bonds to equities to currencies to all of this. So it's a phenomenal world. There has been the most macro instruments in the world are bonds and foreign exchange, then bonds, foreign exchange, credit, commodities, and equities are last. So the stock market is a lot about human hope and optimism and emotion. I think this company is going to do well. When you go to the opposite end of the spectrum, bonds are basically GDP growth plus inflation. And credit is GDP growth, the growth of the company plus inflation, plus risk of not paying you back. So bonds are so pure. It's just, is the economy going up or down in the next six months or so to one year? And is inflation going up or down? That's all the decision you have to make. Super macro. Now, we've just happened to be in the biggest ever trend in all history, which was the falling of interest rates from that 18% when those boomers were 30 years old to now, where it went to zero everywhere in the world. That trend was a macro trend based on demographics and also debts and a bunch of things. But really, it was a demographic trend of those boomers moving through life. That generated almost all the returns for everybody. It also pushed the stock market higher. It created the debt economy, everything because of this mega trend. But now we've pretty much hit zero. Yes, it could go to negative 50 basis points. I know that's a weird world, but that's the world it is in Europe and Switzerland and the UK and Australia and New Zealand. We've had negative rates. That's okay. But that's not much further than here. You know, 10-year bonds, if I look right now, are 1.7%. They got down to about 50 basis points this time last year. Okay. So they can't go much lower. So that big trend lower in rates is not much of a trend anymore. Can they go higher? Maybe inflation's coming back, which I don't think it can. But let's say it does. Well, the Fed have made it clear, as have the Bank of Japan and the Australian Central Bank and the European Central Bank, that rates can't be allowed to go up because it breaks the whole system. So they stop rates going up and rates can't fall much further. So there we go. The biggest money generating engine in the history of investment has just stopped. There's no money to be made. And then the next part is, okay, well, what about the FX market, the foreign exchange market, the big daddy of all, the biggest market, trades 4 trillion a day? Well, the problem is, is that the dollar 
is 85% of every single transaction on earth. So we actually live in a dollar world. Everything is a sideshow. So the dollar is more dominant than Bitcoin is in the crypto world. You know, Bitcoin is like 64% dominance. The dollar is 88 I mean, it's the king, everything matters. Now, the problem is, is if the dollar goes up too much, it destroys emerging markets and global growth. But everybody needs dollars. Everyone's borrowed dollars. They need, so it keeps going up, which is difficult. But if it goes down, it also wrecks economies. So the central banks have made it clear, the central banks have made it clear that they actually don't want the dollar to move anywhere. In fact, if we can just keep all foreign exchange roughly equal, the euro, the pound, the yen, the RMB, the dollar, maybe the Aussie, the big world currencies, the Swiss franc, don't let them move too much. Right? That's basically what they're saying in rates. You make an extraordinary amount of money if the dollar goes up or down, because if the dollar's going down, emerging markets go up. You can borrow money in dollars, you invest in emerging markets. But if it's going nowhere, which I think is what the central banks want, which is, and the people like the BIS, the Bank of International Settlements, the central bank, central bank, and the International Monetary Fund have all said they don't want it moving. So if that's the case, then we've taken up the two biggest macro drivers on earth, and we're left with all the non-macro stuff, which is equities, credit, commodities, which is less macro, can be driven by supply and demand in the case of commodities, and in equities is driven by fear and greed. So the death of macro is that, is suddenly the macro opportunities to apply macroeconomic analysis is going down the toilet. What does all of this mean for millennial investors or just any investor that's getting started today? Is it something that they should even worry themselves with or should they just focus on getting the basics of investing down? The question is, what do you want to invest in? And I think the world is set up for the past and not the future. So what is your, why are you investing? You're investing to create a future opportunity for yourself. So you're investing your current time to create quality time in the future, really. So there's two things I always say. Firstly, invest in your quality time now. Quality of life is the best investment you can make. Then make the investment in yourself. So I would say, okay, where are the most likely opportunities to lie? Well, we've talked about crypto. It has a very high chance of being a very big market for a very long period of time. So you're likely to make more money in that than you will have an all-time record high valuation in the equity market. But there's another thing happening, and I've only just started writing about this, so this is quite new for people, is we're also about to enter a technology age of which we've never, the world and humanity has never gone through before. We're about to combine crypto, a whole new financial system, a whole new exchange of value system with artificial intelligence, robotics. We're adding in genome sciences. We've seen this with how fast the vaccine came. Money's going to flood into that. We're seeing it with everything from autonomous driving to distributed edge computing, where everybody can have enormous computing power, where the cloud is going. We've got a bunch of technologies so disruptive, all hitting at the same time, that we're likely to see an extraordinary period of continued growth. You know, we think about technology stocks as being these darlings of the 2010s, like Google and Facebook and stuff. But the reality is, is that Elon Musk, and I know people hate Tesla, I really don't care because there's three things that are really interesting. One is forget the cars. If he solves autonomous driving and has the programming to do it, he solved one of the largest problems the world has. We can free up all of that labor, all of that cost of taxi drivers, truck drivers, delivery drivers, everything goes. So 
what's Tesla worth in that fortune? So ignore how much they sell cars for, all of these things. These are much bigger things. Could it all go wrong? Of course it could. But he's also solved another thing is, you know, everyone's like, why the hell does he want to go into space? Yeah, he wants to colonize Mars. No, what he's just done is strung up a bunch of satellites everywhere and is now creating Wi-Fi with faster broadband speeds than most people get outside of cities. So he's going to do that globally. That's extraordinary. That's Starlink. It's an amazing thing. So you're about to connect people that have never been connected before across the world. He's doing that. And then the other issue is, okay, we've got too many people and too much traffic. The other thing is he's digging tunnels. Everyone thinks it's crazy, but actually, he's going to do fine from it. But there's a bunch of these kind of things that are going on. 5G, it's huge. We're going to connect everybody with gigantic amounts of data and enable things like the Internet of Things and distributed computing. And then everybody's moving to an entire new financial system, an exchange of value system based on cryptocurrencies. And then we're building things like the metaverse, where we can actually earn money in games or digital life. Doesn't it? It's not even necessarily a game. Digital worlds. And this is all happening right now. It's not like if we'd had this conversation where we launched Real Vision, it's like these things are being researched and there's a bit of VC money. No, no, these are all happening. Starlink is rolling out its stuff. We are seeing the autonomous driving getting closer. Google's very close with Waymo now. All of this stuff is happening right now. I mean, crypto is happening right now. So it is actually a very exciting opportunity. Finally, you might be able to offset the destruction of the value of money by the growth of technology, in which I would include crypto, which has sound money at its core as well. So it's actually a positive message. And keep away from this value versus growth investing, because I actually think now, if I divide the S&P by the Fed balance sheet to try and look at how to value equities, they basically haven't gone anywhere since the Fed started quantitative easing. If I look at things like General Electric and old companies like that, they're just basically zombie companies. Once you adjust for the amount of free money to complicate things, it's actually a fall in the value of the denominator, which is fiat money. But when you look at the NASDAQ, it's actually outperformed. There's a real secular trend in technology going on that's above and beyond that of which they're devaluing money. If you look at crypto versus the Fed balance sheet, basically in a straight line up, because it's actually creating wealth. So only technology and crypto are creating wealth. Everything else is offsetting the fall in the value of currency, including real estate. It's an amazing, fascinating world. And this is all new, and I've only started talking about it, so people will be scratching their heads about these concepts for a while. But follow my Twitter feed. I'll start trying to get people across the line and what I'm talking about. Why is this time different? Because I feel like people were saying similar things like when the internet came around in the 2000s. And it did. It changed everything. But then everything crashed, right? Did it? Or did it go through like the crypto winter? Did the bad investment? In the end, if you'd have held Amazon, you'd be really outrageously, disgustingly wealthy. That's noise. It was an S-curve. We're actually in an exponential adoption trend. All of these things I'm talking about are all going to be newly adopted by seven and a half billion people. People can't get their heads around this. It's not like selling a new fancy phone on sort of the mobile phone itself was an adoption curve. But in those adoption curves, you have something called an S-curve, which is there are points in the life cycle of a business where it's not clear it's going to survive or it needs to pivot to grow fast again. And Amazon saw that. In fact, it fell 90% in 2000. 
And then it had several drops of 40 or 50%, maybe even 60%, as we went through the S-curves of Amazon themselves or the market trying to establish, was this going to make it or not? That's normal. Bitcoin has gone through the same. Ethereum has gone through the same. The whole space will go through the same. And some won't survive. But I thought about this because the narrative is the dot-com bubble. The actual reality is that was the largest game changer I've ever seen, probably since the 1950s that I've heard of. We created a consumer society. The internet was probably bigger than that. It was massive. So I think we should look back upon that point in history differently and just say, yeah, it was an early S-curve, but what came out of it changed the world. I know there are a lot of investors that have been clinging to value investing principles over the last decade as they've continued to underperform. Do you think traditional value investing, the way Warren Buffett historically has done it, is dead? I think it's not dead, but will it outperform? I don't know. Because the world is moving, and people are going to hate me for saying this, because it's such the antithesis of, of the cynical, this time is not different, but it's been proven actually for the last 21 years longer, maybe 25 years, that Metcalfe's law and adoption curves, network effects, are not valued in the same way. And value investors cannot value these things. And they say, yeah, you're all idiots. You'll see in the end. Well, we're 25 years in. I'm sorry, but somebody has to realize that that's a false storm. Now, does value investing mean you lower your risk and build a nice portfolio and that does well over time? Absolutely. Will it outperform network adoption stocks? Zero chance ever, except in a down cycle. And when I talk about network effects, even though the price rise goes exponential over time, when you break it down, it can have some really big ups and downs. So I'm not talking about a smooth curve. It's all going to be easy. We'll make money forever. No, it's like crypto. It comes with a downside. So value investing is not going away. It will never outperform those companies. It will create robust, high-quality portfolios that perform over time. And that's okay. If you've got lower risk, do that. I think that volatility piece that you mentioned is the part that a lot of people miss because they look at Amazon and they'll zoom out on the chart and they'll say, they'll just see an exponential curve up, right? But if you actually drill in a little bit, you see those huge drawdowns that you just talked about. And yeah, if you held that whole period, sure, you'll get amazing, amazing results, but you have to stomach that. Yeah. And probably the only people who held that are probably, well, not even the index funds because it wasn't big enough to be in the early index funds. They didn't have access to it, right? To sell. That's right. So the only person is Jeff Bezos and his ex-wife. They're probably the only people who ran the entire bull market. Yeah, it's incredible. I think about myself. I'm like, I've been telling myself for a long time, I'm still young, but when I first got into investing, I was a value investor. And this whole run-up, I keep telling myself, this time's not different. This time's not different. This time's not different. Don't cave. But I just I keep talking to more people and I'm like, I'm starting to think I might need to like evolve a little bit as an investor and, and start to think about these ideas. You know, I was the same as you, a miserable macro cynic who thought the world was according to how I thought about it. This recession really made me realize that I was wrong. And the understanding of crypto and adoption effects and network effects and technology made me realize that I was wrong. Again, nothing wrong with value investing. It'll do absolutely fine. It's not the way to take risk. And again, that's not for everybody. Is that why your portfolio has gone from a small percentage of crypto to a, a pretty large position? Entirely. You know, I was an equity cynic. I didn't like the equity markets too high valuation. I would do some trading stuff, you know, macro opportunities. But you know, I've never been that buy and hold guy. I just couldn't get comfortable with this whole world. And then crypto started, and 
I've been in the space since 2013, but I still haven't figured it out. But I've really figured it out over the last 18 months and what it meant and how big the opportunity was. And I realized that to create true wealth, you have to understand a theme really well and have very high conviction and concentrate all of your risk, which is the opposite of what we're told. But if you go back and look at Jeff Bezos, why is he so rich? Because he concentrated all his wealth in one bet. Now, you have to do that intelligently. There's a bunch of caveats, a lot of caveats. But that's what I'm trying to tell people. It depends what it is you want to achieve. And for some people who are not really investors, to give some money to growth guys, give some money to a value guy, that's all fine. But people who really want to get into it themselves, there's different opportunities. Some people can get rich owning value. Some people can get rich being short sellers in a bull market. There's no shortage of ways of getting rich. But the easiest way is trend following. And if you've got exponential trends behind your back, everybody can be the dumb money and all make money. And that's great. I mean, even Buffett says diversification is only for people who don't know what they're doing, right? When you talk to your fellow macro experts, what do they all think about crypto and Bitcoin specifically? They all moved across to macro. So I was probably the second, probably the second in the space to move across. Dan Moorhead was first from Pantera. Then I started writing about it in 2013 and investing in it. Not many of the macro guys did. But then after that, one by one, they all went. I mean, they just left macro. And I keep bumping into old famous macro people that I grew up with, all entirely in crypto, crypto and technology. And they just said, forget it. Everything else is a waste of time. Don't generate the types of returns, risk adjusted or otherwise. So they're all there and they're all coming. I don't know a single macro guy is not involved. Do you think there's a pool of investors, not necessarily your sophisticated investors, but just general investors that are trying to chase the next Bitcoin? I think that's like my biggest concern really is people saw how much Bitcoin went up and how some people got so rich off it that they're diving into all these other ideas. And I'm not saying NFTs won't work or all these other things that are coming up, but do you think people are just almost blindly going into those just because they're hoping it's the next Bitcoin? Yes, but that's normal. And I argue with the Bitcoin world over this all the time. Bitcoin world is Bitcoin only. And I'm like, no, all investment has a risk curve. Where you are on your risk curve is up to you. It's how much risk you want to take. Now, it's the same in emerging markets or equity markets. You might start with the S&P, but you want to eventually end up owning Indian equities or whatever it may be, because they're riskier. They might go up more, but they might go down more. So risk-adjusted returns you're hoping will be better. That's what I do. That's normal. And that's why many of these alternative tokens do very well, because capital flows into them in the risk cycle. That's really normal. Same happens in junk bonds and credit and everything else. And because a bunch of people lost money in 2017, they're trying to tell people not to take risk in these things because they lost money. No, what we should be doing is educating people in what risks they're taking and why they're taking them. So they should not be putting all of their money into a token because they think it goes up, hoping that it goes up more than Bitcoin. They need to be educated in the type of risk that they're taking and that it's okay to take that risk, but maybe have some Bitcoin and maybe some Ethereum, and then you can add some of that risk at the edges. Dinner with a mate of mine last night from Little Cayman, you know, the island of 140 people. And he's like, you know, I've been watching all of your stuff and I've been watching Real Vision Crypto and blah, blah, blah. I love this space. I said, what do you own? He said, I own Cardano and XRP. I said, why? What do you know about those? 
Well, I kind of feel like start with a core allocation to Bitcoin, move into Ethereum, spread some other money into other projects that could be interesting. They're very early. Some will go to zero. Some will go nowhere. Some will go up a lot. None of us know at this point. We don't know what the adoption curve looks like. But that's what the space needs to be saying and not shutting people down and saying, well, I lost money in 2017. I'm trying to protect you. That's nonsense. That's just tribalism to make Bitcoin go up more than others. doesn't make sense. It's a big world out there. I can't count how many times I've been told by people, not pressure them, but I'll push back on them and ask them or I'll challenge them and say, you know, why are you investing in that? And they'll just say, oh, I feel like, or I feel like this. And I'm like, God, that's not a thesis, right? No. So how I addressed it was with some intellectual honesty. I pretty much understand Bitcoin as well as anybody, not the technology aspects, but the macro opportunity, what it's doing, where it's going, the players involved, all of that. Ethereum, I'm pretty comfortable with as well. But I also think that the entire digital asset space is going to be absolutely gigantic. And so I wanted exposure. So if my thesis is that network effects are the largest drivers of these things, so I went on to Twitter and asked people, okay, show me a best coin and why? So I got six and a half thousand replies. But what I did was just skim through, okay, what are most people involved in? What do they care about? Where is the reasonable analysis coming from? So I got a basket of 10 equally weighted. It's only 10% of my portfolio. It's gone up 100% in a month and a half, but it's 10% of my portfolio. And I just took an equal weighted basket and said, look, I don't know. I'm not smart enough. But I figured that the space will go up because the risk curve goes up when the bull market goes. And within that, I'm going to learn a lot about this, this space, about which one is which, what's working, what projects are really getting network effects. And that's okay to do because let's say Rel's a total idiot, 10 out of 10 go to zero, lose 10%. Last time I checked, Ethereum was up 10% today. I don't care. That's how you take risk. Why do so many people think only Bitcoin is the answer? Is it because it was the first? Ask Preston. Because they're conflating, this is my opinion, and again, I'm not trying to upset people, they're conflating money with value. Bitcoin is a monetary system, essentially. And it's not at the money stage yet, but it's a store of value. It is a collateral asset. It's all of these things that I've talked about. And there's a potential that it could become a form of money once the volatility goes down and adoption is massive. That's the Bitcoin maximalist argument. I have no problem with that. But money is not the only transfer of value. Other things have value. If things didn't have value, then nobody would buy art or classic cars or equities or anything. They would just hold the dollar because that's money. It's not. Other things have value and they will outperform the value of Bitcoin and they will underperform the value of Bitcoin. And that's just how the world works. We talked about investments, underperforming, outperforming all through this interview. That is what will happen. And this is the internet of value that's being built. It's the exchange, ownership, storage, creation, earning of value. That's miles bigger than people are really thinking. And they're saying it can all be built on Bitcoin. Sure. Will it be? No chance. Will Bitcoin be money? Possibly. Will it be an important part of our financial future? Almost definitely. So there's probabilities embedded in this, right? And for people to say, you've got zero chance, you're an idiot because you're buying Ethereum or whatever it is, is more wrong than the person buying it because they're ascribing zero chance, a zero probability. And when you push them, they say, well, you know, those things, they all trend towards zero, right? I've gone through, written a whole rebuttal about the John Pfeffer article and the fact that 
utility tokens don't have value and only Bitcoin has value. It's not true. It's provable that network effects is how you value these things. Bitcoin is only valued on network effects. It's not valued by any other mechanism. Same with Ethereum. It's identical in how it's valued. And so are all of these. That's a shock to people because they don't want to believe it. Bitcoin believers are becoming like gold believers. There can only be one. Gold is the real money. Now it's Bitcoin. Last thing I checked, gold's been around for 10,000 years. There have been loads of other forms of money that have tried to compete with it or have competed with it. And there's been loads of stores of value, millions of them. If not, there'll be no real estate. It's absurd. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. One of the most common concerns I see from investors about crypto is the worry of government regulation. I read recently a headline that Ray Dalio even said that he wouldn't be surprised if the government outlawed it. What role do you see the government playing in the world of crypto? And in your opinion, is it possible for the government to really outlaw it? I don't think they're going to. I think it's in everybody's interest to have an independent financial asset like gold has been. I think it's in everybody's interest. Everybody knows we've pretty much got a broken financial system. Bitcoin plays a very important role within that. And I think it'll play an 
even more important role. It keeps governments honest, it keeps people honest, it gives people an ability to save money outside of just the interest rates or whatever that the government offer you. It's no riskier or less risky than owning equities. I don't think it's a problem. I think they will regulate our involvement with it, meaning they don't want you to not pay tax. Regardless of what you think you should be doing with tax, you actually live in a country where you democratically vote and part of that system is a tax-based system. In fact, every society in the history of mankind is a tax-based society. And if you don't pay your taxes, then what they say is you should no longer be a member of society, i.e. you go to jail, because that's the point of organized societies. So if you want to not pay taxes, you can move to the Cayman Islands. We do pay tax. We pay import duty and we pay a bunch of other stuff. Everyone pays their share to a government, or if not, society doesn't function. So they will make sure that you pay your fair share. If they try and excessively penalize it, 100% capital gains tax on crypto, well, then you'll force it offshore and force it underground and create more problems. I think they know it. All the noise I get is they just want to try and regulate it so it fits in with their own system. So they want the on-ramps and off-ramps. The ECB, I can see, are trying to slow adoption by driving this ESG narrative. Bitcoin's expensive. The whole world is moving to cleaner energy. Bitcoin is one of the things, but the ECB have used it. Why? Because the institutions have a legal mandate for ESG. So it's going to slow them down in adopting it. That's all that's going on, the slowdown. I think that's fine. I understand why. A bit of a fun question. I know there's no definitive answer to this, but what are your thoughts on Satoshi Nakamoto? Is it one person, group of people? Will we ever even know? Now we're just in conspiracy world, right? So my conspiracy theory which I've held since day one, is when you look at the language, it's transatlantic. I've always thought that it came out of GCHQ in the UK and the NSA in the US. I've always thought it came out of government. You know, I've had conversations over my years with several members of the state security infrastructure in the United States. They know everything about all of this. They understand its place They understand that the financial system is also the Achilles heel of the global world. The other risk they understand is China. They don't not understand the risk of China. They understand this stuff and they have huge teams of people working on outcome analysis. And I've spoken at length in the past about the financial system's problems. And when you've got the smartest cryptographers in the world working for both the UK and the US, then it's not absurd to think a small group gets given an opportunity to say, Hey, listen, if you could design a different system, what would it be? Because we are going to migrate across to that system and it will have worked. So that's my, that's my view. Could be 100% wrong. But my view is it was kind of built as a plan B purposely. Does Bitcoin change or the world of crypto change at all if we ever find out who it is? And it is, in fact, a government? No, because they don't control it. The only problem is, is the outstanding coins, right? That's just a money supply issue. Somebody could push down the price for a while. Okay, fine. I don't know how much they're worth now. 40 billion. I mean, Christ, it's not that big. You could probably sell that to the government of Singapore and you know, investment fund in one tr- transaction. It's not the end of the world. But it would upset people if that were the case. So I think people would much prefer the narrative of mysterious person gifted it to the world. Could have been Hal Finney. He's dead now. We'll never know. We briefly talked about NFTs at the beginning of the conversation. I want to go back to them. Can you define exactly what they are for us and how you see them as a potential investment asset class? All NFTs are 
individual tokens that you attach to physical or digital assets. So that means the asset is now recorded on a blockchain. It can be for a bottle of wine or it could be for digital art. It could be for music. It could be for IP rights. It's just a token that attaches to something. So then I can then transfer ownership to you. And you've got now proven ownership. So this picture behind me is actually an NFT and I've printed it off. Somebody created it for me, of me, and sent it to my Ethereum wallet. It's yours. Right? I now own it. So I can print it off and put it on the wall. I could sell it to you too. So that works. So that's what all they are. So why are they going up so much? Well, you're just opening a bunch of assets that couldn't be sold before to be now rare because digital things weren't rare. We talked about music. It's lost its rarity, so people don't sell, make any money selling records. But if you're the Kings of Leon, you can now create an album on an NFT and sell it to one person, your super fan. He might pay you 10 million bucks for it. Or you could sell it to 1,000 fans and charge them $1,000 each. Or you could sell it to everybody and sell them $1 each. Whatever. It just depends how much guests do you want. So what was the piece of art that sold 69 million, the Beeple piece? Well, he had already become one of the leading digital artists in the world. That piece of art was actually 5,000 pieces of art. His entire artistry from learning to present day altogether created a larger piece of art, a meta-narrative art. So that actually makes them all valued at about 15,000 each in reality. Because it's now... The ownership is on a blockchain. You've got an authenticated thing. Now, people are in uproar about these pictures. They say, it's digital art. It can be replicated. It's worthless, right? Blah, 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 blah. It's the same value. It must go up. Growth investing, stupid. All of this stuff. Just narratives. The reality is, is I can bring you a picture from Michelangelo. And basically, it's a bit of cotton and some paint. And it can be worth $500 million. That's as absurd as digital art. Photographic art, as long as it's signed by the photographer, it's worth money. If you have the negative, it's worth even more. Rare books. If you get a first edition signed by William Shakespeare, not that they exist, it's worth almost infinite money. But yet you and I can go to any bookstore and buy a Shakespeare, or we can buy a secondhand one for 50 cents. So that's what it's doing. It's creating authenticated scarcity. Same as having an album signed by the singer. It can be used for all sorts of things. So what we're seeing now is people buying art. Some of this is a speculative frenzy. Some of that art's worth nothing. Some of it is great art, be worth a lot. And again, I've seen the artwork go, world go through this. Damien Hirst, back at two, in 2000, created a tank of a shark in formaldehyde and sold it to Stevie Cohen, the hedge fund manager, for about 20 million bucks or whatever. And was like, outrageous, this is not art. Angry man shouts at internet. And the reality was... Yes, it was art. And Damien Hirst has been one of the most prolific and famous artists of the 21st century. Same with Banksy. Street art, that's not art. That's just a mess. Guess what? Banksy sells for a lot of money now. It just depends on what people adopt as a store of value and what they don't. So NFTs are just a way of that. And they will develop and morph into ways that you and I have no understanding of. And that's what excites me. One of those things is Jack Dorsey selling his tweet. I can understand. I can wrap my head around everything that you mentioned. I just can't understand. Like, why would somebody want to even buy Jack Dorsey's first tweet? Who knows? It's mainly because we're already ascribing dollar values to this stuff. And actually what it is, is Ethereum. 
All of this is being sold for Ethereum, not dollars. And if you've held on to Ethereum forever and you've got 300 million bucks of Ethereum, to prove the point about NFTs, because you're interested, because you own an NFT platform. I mean, look at the guys who bought the Beeple piece. I mean, they're all over this space. So part of it is to drive the space forwards. So yes, that may be worth nothing, that tweet. Probably worth nothing. Doesn't matter. What it is, is proving a concept to a much broader opportunity. So we can, again, miserable old cynics shouting at the internet will say, it's all worth nothing. The reality is, is like we talked about before in 1997, 98, 99, 2000, where everyone said, oh, that was all a big bust. I think you and I have discovered that actually it wasn't. If that hadn't happened, you and I would not be doing what we're doing today, which is what video and audio perfectly streaming over the internet in different continents, different countries. So really, was 2000 the terrible thing? Or was it just the reallocation of capital into the right places and the right opportunities? So this will be the same. Yeah. In a similar vein, but different, I also invest in real estate. That's my second podcast about real estate. People always ask me, is now a good time to buy real estate? And I always say that as long as the numbers make sense, then it's always the right time to buy a deal. And everybody's response is, well, what about 2007, 2008? And I say, well, the same thing that you just said about the internet as well. If you go back and you look and you bought a deal that made sense with the right numbers, if you held it to today, you're fine. So it's the same thing. If you buy now, as long as the numbers make sense, it makes sense. That's right. And if you're overpaying in a racy market that could collapse, then that's fine. I mean, Miami is a classic example of that. It goes through the boom-bust cycle. People need to understand Miami property is more volatile. It's always the land of dreams. Hopes and dreams. Everyone rushes in, pays too much for real estate, builds too much real estate. Real estate market collapses, too much leverage, and off we go. But over time, has Miami real estate gone up? Yeah. Have people made billions of dollars from it? Yeah. And it's still been very cyclical. It's okay. Which habits or principles have you incorporated into your life that you think have helped lead to your success that not enough people do, but should? Travel. Without question. Without question. The single best thing you can ever do is travel to places that make you uncomfortable. So I'm not talking about going to Ibiza in the summer or, you know, oh, I went to London and mates took the train to Paris. Bullshit. Go to uncomfortable places. Meet people you wouldn't ordinarily meet. Because when you understand how the world, rich texture of the world, different people's opinions, how they live their lives, and they may not be the same as yours, but they're equally right in how it works for them. There is no my way or the highway. It is a very complex, beautiful place out there. You understand the role of nature and why we should care about our environment. Understand how economies develop, how people develop, different schools of thought, different religion. I mean, that alone makes you open-minded. Being open-minded allows you to be a better investor. Being open-minded gives you a sense of opportunity that you will let opportunities come to you. Being closed-minded, not leaving, traveling only to places that you think are safe, where you take no risk. All the quality of the magic of life lives outside of that circle. And until you figure that out, you won't realize what you're missing. It's everything that lies outside the comfort zone. I've even found that to be true, even just across the United States. For a long time, I didn't travel much when I was younger. My parents never traveled much. And then when I got a little bit older, I started to travel. And even just across the country in the US, like California is so much different. I'm in, on the East Coast in New Hampshire. Like we're so much different. And it was huge to learn. Just like it's such a big world out there. But anything, even if you're not an ability to travel, do things outside your comfort zone. You don't like hiking and stuff. Well, then force yourself to go for a week with some friends camping or trekking. Do stuff you wouldn't do. 
you're a little bit introverted. Well, force yourself to go to a bar on your own in a place you've never been to before and meet people. And magic happens. And it's hard. It's really hard. But magic happens and stories happen. And life never happens at home. Life happens outside. Yeah, I agree. I was an introverted accountant and now here I am. I'm talking to you, Kevin O'Leary, you know, all these amazing, amazing guests. So I, I completely agree. Raul, thanks so much for joining me today. I told you this before we started recording, but I followed Real Vision since it just started. So it was awesome to be able to sit down and chat with you. For those listening that want to learn more about you and Real Vision, where's the best place for them to go? You can find me on Twitter at Raul, R-A-O-U-L-G-M-I, which is short for Global Macro Investor. So at Raul GMI at Twitter, you can follow me there. Always go and check out Real Vision. I think there's very few people listening to this podcast who won't be, who won't be aware of Real Vision. Real Vision, there's a free YouTube channel. There's podcasts of our free content. There's the subscription side, which has got all of the amazing stuff, plus all the learning tools. We're embedding education through all of our tiers. And we have a free crypto channel. So there's almost, if anybody is interested in any part of the financial, macro, or economic arena, it's all there for you. We built it for you. I can't recommend Real Vision and following Raul on Twitter enough. So guys, go check that out. Raul, thank you so much. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. I just hope I don't piss off Preston too much. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.